All right, welcome back, everyone. This is part two of our Historia's episode on Jewish identity in the medieval and early modern worlds. I hope you enjoy. So, I mean, you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to kind of move up a little bit from kind of moving from the medieval into the early modern. And you, you mentioned the 1492, um, Columbus sailing the ocean blue, um, the, the conquest of Granada, and also the, the big one kind of for our discussion here. We, we do get the expulsion of the Jewish community from first kind of the combined crowns of Aragon and Castile, and then later from Portugal as well. And I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about what this kind of how this impacted, first of all, the Jewish community, but we also see a lot of new Christians leaving as well. And so just kind of looking a little bit at, at this, this kind of diaspora that's, that's taking place and looking at the impact, not just kind of in Iberia, but also kind of looking throughout these kind of Jewish communities throughout at least Europe. Yeah, so you mentioned 1492. That's when uh, the crowns of Castile and Aragon more or less decided, okay, we can't properly integrate conversos. We can't properly Christianize them if they're going to be living among Jews and essentially having been fraternizing with them. So we have to expel the Jews and thereby create a kind of a homogenous uh, culture. By the same token, we have to, you know, we have to forcibly acculturate the, the Muslims who are still living as Muslims in, in the South, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when the expulsion order is, orders, I should say, in Castile and Aragon are issued, a lot of the um, Jews of those kingdoms, especially in Castile, flock to Portugal. But then the king of Portugal falls under the under pressure from Fernando and Isabel to convert his Jews. So he, so the king of Portugal, uh, uh, Manuel, uh, Manuel uh, he issues his own conversion decree, but he doesn't really want to get rid of his Jews because they're too important to his economy. So he, he uh, has them congregated in what they think are going to be ports of exit. Uh, and some hangars and some cathedrals, and he has them, you know, cursorily uh, converted to Christians. So we have now a new new population of of uh, new Christians, Christos Novos, right? Judeo conversos in this case, and uh, in their ranks are some of the staunchest Jews who resisted conversion in Spain, but now they've been given a an offer they can't refuse. So. And then, of course, the pressure falls upon the king of Navarre, and he actually does expel his Jews. So what you have by 1500, let's put it this way, are two radically separated populations, right? Conversos or judeo-conversos in the Iberian Peninsula, and Megorashim, right? Expelees who are Jewish, who are now settling in places like Western North Africa, the, the Italian Peninsula, and eventually they make it to the Levant, right? To the main uh, port cities of the Ottoman Empire and to the land of Israel, which is also under Ottoman control. So, you know, so, so the, the conversos, first of all, are left without a sort of a living wellspring of Jewish culture. So whatever they, they, they consider to be Jewish is really informed by Christian, you know, very authoritarian conception of what it means to be Jewish. Uh, to answer the second part of your question, your second question, how common was Judaizing among the conversos? I would argue, based on, you know, my impression uh, from having read, you know, hundreds of inquisitorial trials from the 16th century to the 18th, that in the early generations, you could make the case that, that there were many people who were confused and who were practicing things either in a self-conscious or unself-conscious way 
that then the church understood to be, uh, you know, purposive Jewishness. Yeah, stands to reason. I mean, if you live if you live among Jews, if you uh, have business with Jews, you know, etc., you're going to do things that you used to do when you were Jewish yourself. Okay, so you're you're going to donate uh, money to purchase oil for the lamps at the synagogue. Okay. Is that Judaizing? Well, in the strictest terms of the church and the holy office, yeah. It, does it mean that the subject wants to be Jewish, uh, you know, unambiguously, that, you know, this is a person who's who's rev revolting against the, uh, the church? Well, not necessarily. Okay, but there's much more incidence of that. After the first and most destructive inquisitorial purges, that is to say the executions of about 2,000 conversos, from 1478 to about 1520, you see that conversos basically get the message. And whatever uh, traces of, quote unquote, Judaizing persist, have to go deeply underground, if they exist at all, okay? So my tentative argument is that as of about 1530, in Castile and Aragon, Judaizing as a as a as a historical phenomenon essentially ceases and becomes a phenomenon of the anti-Jewish imagination or the xenophobic imagination. Portugal is a different story, right? Because as I mentioned, you know, the Portuguese new Christian community originally includes many staunch uh, former Jews. Yeah. And by the way, according to Halakha, you, you don't convert out of being Jewish, right? You 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 once a Jew, always a Jew, right? You may be a bad Jew, but <laughs> and, and therefore a meshumad, a person who should be doing it to Z, but you're still technically a Jew. So, but leaving that aside, the, uh, the crown of Portugal is pragmatic. And so it doesn't want to impose a, a, an inquisition to persecute the converts right away. Uh, in fact, it, it issues laws that laws to punish those who would persecute, who would discriminate against uh, conversos, Portuguese conversos, up until 1536. So, what happens between, let's say, 1497 and 1536 is that those who wish to become good Christians and to integrate fully into a, in a Portuguese Christian community, they do that. And those who want to resist or remain separate or whatever, you know, they, they do that as well. So there, among the Portuguese conversos, you have at least the possibility of greater incidence of something like a, a rebel identity. I'm not going to call it Jewish. I'm going to call it, let's say, um, residually Jewish or, or even anti-Christian, right? And again, it's fed, this identity is fed by the reading of the Old Testament, which, by the way, is very different from the Hebrew Bible. And two, believe it or not, the reading of anti-Jewish treatises. Some mm -hmm. conversos read anti-Jewish treatises to learn, quote unquote, what Jews do, and they adopt that. I, I I love that. I think that's that's because it's just the opposite of what they're trying to do, right? They're of the course, yeah. And yeah, it yeah. reminds me a lot of what happened with witchcraft as well, where they had these sure. these kind of books. So it's like, oh, this is how you recognize a witch, and a lot of people are like, oh, this sounds great. Let me go do these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, we live in a world that still functions like that, right? I mean, I I remember when when the word queer was a term exclusively a term of abuse in English, right? And then uh, around the 90s, uh, when I lived in, in San Francisco, I found very proud people in the LGBTQ, et cetera, community. Well, it wasn't the Q community then. I start to use queer as, as a term of pride, right? So in other words, there's a kind of a subversive element to 
to the to what has hitherto been called the crypto Jewish phenomenon. It's more subversion, more or less for its own sake, than it is anything having to do with the way that Jews lived and the way that Jews thought. There's, you know, the Jews, I haven't talked about them, the ones who left, they create a very broad diaspora and they start to crystallize as truly Sephardi, right? They, they don't call themselves Sephardi until they leave for the most part. The only people who I know call themselves Sephardi before there was a category of Sephardim, right? Uh, were Maimonides living in Egypt because he came from, uh, from the south of Spain. So he called himself uh, Musa ibn Maimon Hasfardi or Moshe ben Maimon Hasfardi, the, 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 the Sephardi. And uh, Ibn Ezra, right? He also signed his letters. I, I, I mean, Abraham Ibn Ezra called himself uh, Hasfardi because he had left Andalusia and he settled uh, in Christian domains in Spain. But, you know, they're not saying, oh, we belong to this ethnic subgroup called Sfardim. They're saying we come from Spain. But it's really when the Megurashim, when the Expelis established themselves in the Ottoman Empire, in the Mediterranean base, and so forth, that they start to coalesce as a distinctly Sephardi group, and they uh, very often retain Castilian, Judeo-Castilian, as a key marker of their identity. Do you, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting, and I think this really ties nicely to my next question as well. Do you see kind of these exiles in the formation of these new kind of Jewish identities influencing other Jewish communities in Europe as well? I mean, extraordinarily so, yes, extraordinarily so. Uh, first, I should mention the communities of native Jews, for example, um, so-called Mustarabim, the, the people who are like Arabs in North Africa, or the, which is to say the local, you know, Moroccan, Algerian, uh, Berber Jews, etc. And also the Romaniot Jews in the, uh, in the Northern Levant. In other words, the Greek speaking Jews who trace their ancestry to the, uh, uh, to the communities of the Byzantine empire. So these communities become increasingly Sephardicized, hmm. yeah? which is to say that while they are not, they do not, these communities do not consist of people who are ethnically and genealogically Iberian. They adopt what's called Minhag Sfarad, the right or the custom of, of, of Spain. Hmm. And this uh, allows us to speak in, to this day about many, many quote-unquote Sephardim, right? Sephardi Jews, who are not really Sephardi Jews. They're simply people who follow the traditions, the liturgical, legal, customary of Iberian Jews. That, that's really interesting. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know that this happened to, to quite this extent. So. Yeah, it, it certainly did. Look, I, had a, I have a, a uh, colleague in the literature field uh, who is a Jew of Persian origin. And I don't know what we were discussing. This is a long time ago in the MLA conference. And she identified herself as a Sephardi. At that time, I was the, I guess, uh, some sort of officer in the Sephardi discussion group. So she proposed a paper and she said, okay, I'm talking about my family because I'm Sephardi. I said, what do you mean you're Sephardi? You're from Persia. You're Persian. <laughs> and even within Persia, you can't say, well, there's just, there's just Persian Jews. You have, the, you have the Tehranis. You have the Isfahanis. You have the Kurdim. I mean, you have a lot of different, I mean, you know, it's not so simple, but this, uh, this incredible cultural stamp that developed in exile from the Iberian Peninsula has come to really to unite, or if not unite, then certainly to paper over distinctions among the non-Ashkenazi uh, non Jews. That's, that's really, that's, I, I find that really fascinating. 
So kind of staying on this theme of identity, but changing gears, maybe shifting gears a little bit, um, a lot of your recent work also talks about just the use of polemics and the way that we see these kind of intellectual, these, I think you call them these discourses on identity, these discourses of identity, really playing this fundamental role in the way that we see these communities really giving shape to their own identity. I was wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit about these polemics, kind of what they are, how they're functioning, and how they really serve as these key kind of markers, creators of this kind of these identities as well. So uh, polemics present us with a very interesting opportunity to uh, explore how people define themselves publicly, uh, particularly uh, conversos, judeo-conversos, and those among the conversos who left the Iberian Peninsula because they, were, they felt persecuted and who became Jews abroad. They joined existing Jewish communities or they uh, founded uh, new Jewish communities from scratch, so to say. So both of these, uh, let's say these sides, the, the new Christian, but Iberian, and the former Iberian, right, or the uh, Iberian expatriate, these two, these two um, sides of the coin generate much polemical writing. Primarily because they're the place of these subjects in society, be it Jewish or Christian, is not a given. Right, there is a need to defend conversos against certain kinds of persecution. There is a need to recriminate against the Catholic Church and the Iberian monarchs for the persecution of conversos. In other words, there are a lot of open questions. Who are we? Why do we behave as we do? To what community should we attach ourselves? Uh, and under what terms? Right in Iberia proper, there are a number of um, churchmen, really uh, prominent um, clerics of converso ancestry, who uh, write often in an autobiographical mode to argue that conversos should not be persecuted, should not be discriminated, but should be re-educated and should be distanced from, should be uh, extricated from the grip of uh, their their uh, relatives and their uh, ancestors, Judaism, and I use the term purposely, right? The problem for these converso bishops and archbishops in some cases is still Judaism. In other words, they still uphold the, uh, the, uh, the ideology of anti-Judaism, according to which the problem with Jews is their religion, right? Parenthesis, again, Jews don't have a religion. Just as you know, uh, the, I mean, you can say the Navajo don't have a religion. The uh, the ancient Egyptians don't have a religion. They they have religious aspects of their culture, but they don't call it a religion. It's not not Navajoism. It's not Egyptism. It's you know, it's it's a, it's a comprehensive way of life. But anyway, so on that side, we see a kind of a return. On the I'm talking about the side of the of the converso clerics. We see a return to the to the arguments of Saint Paul, according to Saint Paul a Jew could be a Christian. In other words, a person who was genealogically Judean could still be a Christian in good standing, could still be saved. And in fact, such a person represented the best kind of Israel, Israel in the flesh and Israel in spirit, right? So as you can imagine, the converso uh, uh, clergymen are saying, this is exactly who we are. This is exactly what we are. And what is more, please notice that our, that our ancestry does not justify our persecution. In fact, quite the contrary. Our, our, our ancestors are the same people who, out of whom 
the Virgin Mary and the apostles and Jesus himself came. So how can you treat us as a, you know, as an infected uh, family tree? Yeah. How can you uh, say that it is our blood that makes us prone to, uh, to subversion and so forth? Uh, on the side of the new Jews, that is to say the conversos who take refuge abroad, primarily in the uh, late 16th, early 17th century, uh, the question is, okay, so why are we not blending into existing Christian communities, be they Protestant or Catholic, but less exclusionary than in, uh, than in Spain and Portugal? So several uh, rabbis, or you, know, you might say uh, university graduates turned rabbis, Christian university graduates turned rabbis, and many autodidacts, uh, Renaissance men, if you, if you wish, uh, start to write defenses of Judaism. But notice they use the term Judaism. They're still speaking in, a, in Christian terms about the culture of the Jews. And so what's interesting is that polemics that uh, have, of course, uh, home audiences, right? The Christians are talking to Christians and the Jews are talking to Jews, right? Are still, in a sense, building a bridge between the two between the two communities, because they're they're employing the same uh, methodologies very often, uh, the same languages, same Iberian languages, in some cases Latin as well, and they share key assumptions, right? In in this case, that that Jews indeed have a religion, a faith called Judaism, and that it does it, its main purpose is to save the soul of the believer. <laughs> which I can tell you is completely nonsensical. I mean, not nonsensical, it, it makes sense. What it is, is inaccurate. Mm -hmm. yeah? This is a kind of halfway house, you know, adopted Judaism of the conversos who wish to, you know, to, to blend into a Jewish mainstream. Eventually they do. And you can see already in their polemics, a, a, a lurch toward a conception of, of the holistic culture, the, the conception of of the Jewish nation as distinct from the Jewish, let's say, faith community or something like that. But you know, that's that's uh, that's really in the future. Well, I mean, I'm 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 curious. Do we ever see the development of kind of like a Jewish religion amongst these communities besides kind of in these polemics? Do we? Oh do yes. We see that on, okay. So oh, yes, absolutely. Like practiced like a it's, practiced religion taking place. Yes, especially in the sui generis communities that were founded by these Iberian exiles, in communities where the Iberian exiles have to contend with Jewish majorities that are just traditional, I mean, the, the process of Judaization takes on a very different character. Not to say that there isn't this kind of re religionizing of Jewishness, at least in the first generations, but, you know, in the, in the Ottoman Empire, I mean, you know, the, the Iberians don't say we are of the, we are of the Jewish faith, <laughs> or we are of the Hebraic faith or anything like that. They simply say we're Jews, and um, eventually they, as I said before, they they um, partake of a culture that is very staunchly and very proudly Sephardic, and so in a sense that obviates the need to draw out these very complex self-justifications. In the West, in the Western Sephardi diaspora, things are a little bit different, and I'm not talking here about the Italian peninsula or, or other places where there were existing and very vibrant Jewish communities. I'm talking about, you know, southern, southwestern France, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Hamburg, places that were essentially populated Jewishly by these Iberians. 
it is they who conceive of Ju Judaism yeah, as a religion. Eventually, they have to drop that. And the, the one who picks it up is uh, Moses Mendelssohn in the 19th century to make a case about integration into a, an enlightened world, an enlightened civiliz uh, European civilization. But uh, there is a, a very interesting uh, you know, phenomenon in the, in the 17th century, early 18th as well, whereby these uh, former Iberians and their children are, in a sense, speaking a common language with the people and the cultures that have rejected them and that they have rejected. That, I, I, I find that really fascinating. I, I think it's this, this, I mean, again, this idea where it's kind of, it's almost imposed on the outside, but it's this, this idea, this external idea of what Judaism is, and they've almost made it real in a sense. They've kind of created this Absolutely. thing that they're afraid of. So Yes, there's a kind of, you're right, there's a reification of inquisitorial Judaism in the lives of some of these exiles. At least a partial reification, yes. Mm -hmm. It's, it's an interesting process. So I, I do want to kind of jump ahead a little bit um, and just talk a little bit. You mentioned this idea of the Jewish nation. I, I know you've also written a little bit about this idea of a Jewish civilization that develops in the early modern period. So I was wondering if you kind of talk a little bit about them, looking at the way that we start seeing these Jewish communities start feeling kind of more of a connection with one another and kind of recognizing kind of themselves in these other communities elsewhere in Europe, elsewhere in the Mediterranean, kind of yeah. elsewhere, kind of moving even beyond that as well. Okay, so when we started to talk about the Middle Ages, uh, I mentioned that from, let's say, the 600s, or if I didn't mention it uh, as specifically as I do now, I did sort of allude to this. Now it's time to specify, right? The, uh, from the 600s to the, let's say, the 900s, Jews inhabit many very, very different places. They live under very different regimes, so Christian, so Muslim, whatever. Uh, but they still share something like a unitary culture that is uh, institutionally quite well-developed, right? The Geonim, the uh, the excellencies of the academies in Baghdad and in the uh, in the Galilee send law outward, right? To, to be shared widely. And so Jews build mental connections across vast geographic and chronological space. But then the Gaonic academies and the uh, office of the exilarch decay. And this decay co coincides with the, with the, really, with the decline of the Abbasid Empire. So what happens is that these nascent culture areas of the Jews, the Ashkenazi, the Sephardi, the Italian, and the Bavli, the Babylonian, therefore also the, the Galilean, the, the North African, um, you know, which is uh, anchored in Ifriqiya in present-day Tunisia, etc., all these cultures start to acquire certain independence, a certain, you know, sort of a uh, sense of pride, sense of, of, of individuality, et cetera. Had the early modern centuries not transpired as they did, today we might find that these culture areas are as distinct, for example, as, I don't know, Americans and Canadians or, uh, or uh, Rabbanite Jews and Karaites or Protestants and Catholics, you name it, okay? Or, you know, let's say um, the old believers and the mainstream Greek Orthodox, something like that, or, or and actually not Russian Orthodox, not, uh, not Greek Orthodox. Th these are bad analogies, but what I'm trying to say is that, for example, Maimonides, right, was the most famous Jewish intellectual of the 11th, 12th centuries, okay? He wrote extensively in Arabic, in, in Hebrew, uh, he was quoted by non-Jews. In fact, now we have 
evidence that he spoke and he wrote romance. You know, he also wrote uh, sort of an, an ancestor of Spanish. He knew nothing, nothing about what was going on among his colleagues in Ashkenaz, in Central Europe, in the, in the Rhineland. He never quoted, for example, Rashi. The most important, this is, uh, Rashi is an acronym for Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, right? The most important exegete, the most important interpreter of law and lore in the Ashkenazic world. His students were Maimonides' contemporaries. They, they developed many, many important um, uh, innovations in the study of, of holy texts. And yet Maimonides knew nothing about them. So why? Well, my answer is that the early modern hadn't happened. What happened in the early modern is partly what we've already discussed, right? Which is that the Iberian Jewish community uh, you know, or the Iberian Jewish communities, right, became dispersed throughout the Mediterranean. We also have the advent of print. We have the, for various reasons that don't need to distract me now, the development of a professional rabbinate. It may, may be a little bit difficult for, uh, <laughs> even for, for modern Jews to understand, but uh, rabbis, you know, originally didn't take a salary, okay? They were not professionals. They were, they were people who had jobs as, I don't know, as, as, um, dyers of, of textiles and, uh, you know, uh, craftsmen and so forth. And in addition to that, they served as judges for their communities. But anyway, the, the professional rabbinate is established by about the 15th century. And you have the uh, development of a very popular kind of pietism, uh, mystical, quote-unquote, Kabbalistic pietism. And so this becomes a common language as well. All these things bring Jews together mentally, and in many cases, physically, right? They, there, there is, for the first time in many centuries, the, uh, the reality of many multi-ethnic Jewish cities. To give you an example, in the ghetto of Venice, uh, Jews are, you know, of course, crammed in, but they retain their ethnic identities by establishing separate synagogues. And at the same time, of course, they're all, you know, doing business with each other, they're learning each other's languages. They're pollinating each other's minds. They're marrying each other. They are uh, less often. More often, they are having sex with one another. They're fighting each other. You know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, I don't want to say a melting pot, because it certainly isn't that, but it's, it's, it's a mosaic, right, that has never quite existed. And so Jews learn, again, in a very palpable way that they constitute a people, a single people. But as the Venetian example shows us, they also try to retain something of their sub-ethnic uniqueness. And this is where they start to, uh, to defend what they call their minhag, again, their right or their, uh, their customary traditions. I, I know I've had you here for a long time, so I kind of want to wrap things, <laughs> wrap things up a little bit. Sure. Um, so I, I do want to kind of turn to just kind of my, my final questions here. And the first one, You've talked, um, or kind of recently, you helped organize this, this seminar that was focusing on new Christians and new Jewish discourses of identity um, during the early modern period, um, and those through those at the Israel Institute for Advanced Studies. And so I was, I mean, I feel like that seminar touches on a lot of things you've been talking about today. So I was wondering if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about the seminar, as well as what you kind of see as some of your key takeaways from kind of bringing so many kind of really, really kind of major scholars together to kind of talk about a lot of these issues. 
Yeah, so um, right now, I, I mean, I have to say, I have to uh, remind myself that, um, remind your, your listeners that it was very nice to have you in that seminar. And that, that one of the reasons that uh, I and uh, my partner and friend, uh, um, Lotsuchinsky of Barilani University uh, created the, the seminar is to, uh, to draw in people who are uh, grappling with some of the same problems that we encounter among conversos, right? So um, what are some takeaways from our year-long uh, discussions? Uh, among other things, uh, I think this is, you know, uh, it's a bit obvious from, from afar, but the, of course the, the interest lies in all the details, right? New Christians and new Jews were an integral part of larger early modern phenomena. They, they weren't just miniature versions of what was going on in the, in the non-Jewish world. They were actual protagonists of many of these large changes. So for example, the De La Caballeria family, right? Family of conversos that reached very high places in the uh, Iberian church and in the Iberian army, the Iberian state, et cetera. They were, you know, you might say spearheads of absolutist monarchy uh, of their rulers. They, they articulated ideologies and they undertook projects which bring us to very large questions like how on earth did Spain emerge from all these, you know, little principalities and, and fractious little states into a world hegemon by the 16th century. People like Menashe ben Israel, right? A, an Iberian trained uh, university grad. Well, excuse me, I, he was Iberian born. He might've been trained. I don't remember at the moment. He might've been trained in Italy, but regardless, he was, he was a very, very Westernized fellow who knew what it was to be a Christian from the inside, the uh, converso, right? And then he became a rabbi in Amsterdam. And among other things, he advocated the readmission of Jews uh, into England, right? Mm. And uh, he, he, his, his entreaties to uh, the government of Oliver Cromwell had a very strong um, messianic subtext. However, he presented the argument for readmission in strictly mercantilist terms. And so in a sense, he was using mercantilism to achieve something like what he understood to be a Jewish messianic end. So again, here's a guy who was, you know, just one fellow. He was a, uh, a, a tremendous entrepreneur, what you might call it a cultural entrepreneur. He held conferences with uh, Antonio Vieira, uh, the most famous uh, Catholic preacher of his day, uh, about possibly reinserting conversos in the Iberian Peninsula and so on. So again, another protagonist of, of uh, world history at a time when Jews are a very, very small minority. And then, of course, we come to uh, Spinoza, right? Uh, who was the child of Iberian exiles, the child of new Jews, and who, in essence, introduced or, or epitomized a trend in skepticism that was already evident among some of his earlier, earlier peers. People who came from the peninsula or who had been educated in Italian universities and who didn't just want to swallow the, the rabbinic Kool-Aid just as they didn't swallow the, uh, the Catholic Kool-Aid either. Yeah, so that's one takeaway. Another takeaway is that new Christian polemicists were among the most significant bicultural subjects 
of their time. They, as I mentioned before, they actually bridge cultures, despite the fact that they were trying to disentangle them and to defeat the, the, the others, the other guys, yeah? They were speaking the same language as their enemies. They were very often publishing polemical works against each other, you know, having been goaded by the others, by someone on the other side. So they've, they created a, a very interesting community of, of, of discourse that was united by enmity and by the need to justify certain identity decisions. As I also mentioned before, this is one, one last takeaway I'll mention. The polemicists on the new Jewish side included a number of uh, articulate autodidacts, people who normally would not have been publishing anyway, but who in an age of print suddenly became very, very loquacious. And they were uh, at the forefront of the globalization of the world economy. They were used to crossing geographic borders. They were used to crossing cultural borders. And they ended up in very far away places in the, in the Amazon forest, in, uh, in Nagasaki, in Goa, in, uh, you know, and they, they also, um, you know, switch back and forth from, from acting like Christians to acting uh, like Jews, depending on, on what the circumstances uh, demanded. So these people not only wrote polemics, but they actually, I think, broke free to an extent of the imaginary boundaries of the old medieval world. To give you an example, Menashe ben Israel, whom I mentioned uh, just a second ago, published a kind of memoir by a certain fellow, uh, Fernando Montesinos. Fernando Montesinos was a new Jew who uh, ended up in, uh, I believe it was, uh, well, the, the, the region that became Colombia. Huh. Right? And he argued that in the, uh, in the rainforest, there, he had found traces of the lost 10 tribes of Israel. He argued that the Amerindians were descendants of the 10 lost tribes. And therefore, I mean, you might say, well, what's the big deal? You know, it's like saying, oh, I saw a UFO the other day. Well, it was actually more significant than that. Because what he was saying was essentially, look, the dispersion of the Jews has been so complete that even in the new world, you find Israelites. Therefore, the redemption, the final redemption, the messianic era may in fact be closer than we think. Mm. So all of these things, the reimagination of these strange natives as lost or children of lost Israelites, all these things are made possible by these freewheeling, you know, swashbuckling autodidacts. Uh, I, I did not know that about Montesinos. That sounds, I, I love that though. That's cool. Um, so, so one last question here for you. Um, along with the seminar, I know you've also been working on this edited collection, um, so Early Modern Jewish Civilization, Unity, and Diversity in a, in a Diasporic Society. And I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about this project as well, and also kind of hope what you hope to achieve by kind of bringing these different scholars and these different kind of articles together as well. Thank you. So in this uh, collection that I uh, spent much of my sabbatical year in Jerusalem editing, uh, and writing too, I sort of provide a big picture of some of the phenomena that I've just sketched here. Uh, in other words, I, I look at the advent of print, uh, the formation of a professional rabbinate, the expulsions and many demographic changes that we've mentioned here, the resurgence and the crystallization of a whole new category of culture called minhag, you know, custom. We see, or I, I treat the settling of Jews in new places to them, new places, 
in the Caribbean, in uh, uh, Dutch Guiana, etc. I look at not only I, but my co-authors uh, uh, look at certain mutations in anti-Jewish discourse, from a focus on religion to a focus on race, between quotation marks. I look at phenomena such as ghettoization, right? The restriction of Jewish residents to particular neighborhoods that are maintained by curfew. I look at the dynamic force of a popularized Jewish mysticism flowing from uh, the Galilee outward into the rest of the Jewish world. My co-authors and I look at phenomena of egregious dissidence, egregious non-normativity, which speak of great uh, internal turmoil in Jewish society. What I'm trying to do essentially is provide an introduction of the early modern world to non-experts. And I'm trying to do it in a way that doesn't shower them with factoids, okay? There are very good books out there that cover everything, right? But I didn't want to cover everything. I simply wanted to focus on specific or, 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 or you know, ask experts in specific uh, subfields or areas of the early modern uh, phenomenology to dig deep, yeah? to look at each of these centrifugal and centripetal forces that are giving shape to a rather well-articulated diasporic civilization. That's why the book is called uh, Unity and Diversity in a Diasporic uh, Community. So that's a goal. And I think, you know, given the fact that this is meant for everyone from, you know, 17-year-old uh, freshmen to and fresh women to, you know, educated lay people who are in their, in their late 90s, you know, I, I think I've achieved a, an accessible work written by people who are really at the cutting edge of their of their expertise. And uh, so anyway, um, readers will be the judge, but I'm quite pleased with it. Sounds good. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. I think it sounds great. Um, so that that's it for today. Um, so, David, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and meeting with us today. My pleasure. It's nice to see you again. And I hope I've been uh, reasonably coherent. <laughs> I, I think I think you've been great. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully everyone listening has enjoyed it as well. So thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next month as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.